Owen, and I'm a consumer. It started when I was young. I didn't have much of a chance, really. I was presented the Argos catalogue to, to leaf through in preparation for every major life celebration. And then the day came with this, this rush of, of new stuff. To be fair, my parents were hesitating in their consumerism, uh, which is why it was not until I was 12 that I was uh, able to, to go to school with the correctly branded uh, trainers. And I, instead of two stripes or four stripes on the side, this pair had three stripes. I still remember the relief of, of being able to be accepted, um, to, to belong. It's that kind of easy belonging that suddenly was mine, the respect of the other lads. I had arrived now that I had the, the correctly branded trainers. I remember perfecting the art in high school of, of drawing a Nike tick um, all over my exercise books. What is that about? These, these images, these icons, these brands invade us, invade our imaginations, colonize our imaginations since uh, you know, they do that from childhood, show it, mapping out the, the lines of, of, of worth, of, of what it means to be accepted, what it means to belong. I remember hand-me-down tops from my cool uncle that were ugly, except for the fact that they had this designer label sticking quite obviously, brightly, out of the side. And so, gladly, I wore this, these tops. Why? Because it, it, it kind of indicated to, to others that I was with it, you know, that, that in fact that I was somehow more with it or, or, or more worth their attention or respect than perhaps some other people who, who didn't have the, the skills or the resources to indicate something similar. This is what we are up to as good little consumers. Purchasing a relatively shallow identity, buying into one vision or another of the good life, crafting an identity, expressing our individuality perhaps, albeit along these ironically predictable pathways that are mapped out for us by advertising executives like the, the sporty identity pathway or the creative or the, the intellectual look or um, what might it be, an alternative, an alternative look maybe we go for. It's partly about communicating what type of person we are or, or we want to be received as. It's partly also about communicating rank and status and sophistication. The house, the car, the watch, the holiday, the, the expensive hobby. We appraise ourselves and others according to this stuff all the time. We even have these makeover shows, right, that take some poor souls who've happened to have fallen behind in this, this consumer game and, and restore them to the, the cutting edge of consumer respectability. This is our individualist consumer culture, taking captive our imaginations, shaping our aspirations, marking out where belonging and worth is to be found with empty promises of satisfaction and fulfillment. This is the freedom that we enjoy and defend. It is our individualist consumer culture and it is a dominant force in all of our lives. Skip back nearly 2,000 years to a town called Colossi, which was located in what is now Turkey. 
and the dominant force in people's lives was the Roman Empire. And I've, I've, I've made a bit of a slide to help us make the comparison between these dominant forces of the 21st century and of the first century. So instead of corporate logos and consumer advertising, people were surrounded by images of the Roman Empire. So Caesar's head was on coins and hung up in houses. Even their pots and mosaic flooring all carried these symbols of Roman rule and military might. Instead of weekly pilgrimages to shopping malls, there were routines of devotions to be made at the temples of the imperial cult. So instead of Black Friday, Christmas, Valentine's Day, and the sales, the Roman calendar was geared towards reinforcing the Roman rule. With public feasts to celebrate Caesar, and free bread would be given out each month in the name of Caesar. So instead of today's exploitative global economy, more on that next week, there was a heavy tax system back in the day that sucked wealth and economic strength back to Rome, which effectively crushed the possibility of any meaningful opposition forming. And so in place of aircraft carriers, there were the well-trained armies of Ro the Roman army. Perhaps you learned about it in school. It all served to reinforce the story of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Caesar was, of course, supreme, the figurehead of the Pax Romana, as on the back of the coins. It said the peace of Rome. It, it had this, um, the, you know, literally Caesar was was heads and the piece of Rome was tails. You know, this was the association. Caesar was the divinely appointed head, the son of the gods, and his rule delivered peace. Everyone knew that. It was self-evident. So it's to this context that Paul starts writing about the supremacy of Jesus, saying things like, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, that in Jesus dwells the fullness of the deity bodily. In Jesus, all other things were created, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, that actually it's all answerable to Jesus, that in Jesus all things hold together, that he is the head over every power and authority, and that through him has come true salvation and peace, not through vast armies, but conversely through the blood of the cross. So very quickly, when you're reading this stuff, it becomes abundantly clear that this, this following Jesus, this following Jesus thing is not another one of those private devotional habits that otherwise good Roman citizens may do on a Sunday morning if that's, if that's what they fancy. But this sort of following Jesus is calling into question the whole empire. It's challenging the claim of the Roman Empire to be the ultimate political religious reality. It's challenging whether the Roman Empire really is the divinely appointed state of things, the, the order that is here to stay. It's subversive. So here's a haunting question for us on the, the 21st century side of things. Are there any ways in which our following of Jesus is calling into question our dominant consumer culture? Or is this more of a... Um, private devotional habit that we otherwise good little consumers just happen to do on a Sunday morning because maybe some of our favorite shops are shut. Just leave that hanging for a second. And what I want to do is run through just quickly how there's a little sort of 
imaginative exercise, run through how this, this kingdom imagination connects and subverts some of the, the norms of the, the dominant culture of the day. So, in contrast to understanding the world through the victorious face of Caesar, and in, in place of all the logos and the symbols that would give us status and belonging and identity, the image of this kingdom, the logo, is the cross. This is not something you, you can buy your way into, nor sculpt for yourself. Jesus is not trying to sell you anything. At the cross, we get graced with a new identity, forgiven, accepted, loved, actually satisfied. One theologian, and I like this, observes that, that maybe that kind of insatiable drive that each of us have, that the advertisers tap into so skillfully, that, that insatiable drive for more, more stuff, better food, wilder experiences, maybe that drive within us is not pure evil, but actually it belongs to the order of infinity. Maybe our insatiable drive for more is actually a clumsy expression of our intuition that we were made for something without bounds, that we were made for God. And the cross invites us, invites us in to inhabit the enough of God, the peace of God that comes to us as a free, pure gift. So let's go back to that slide if we can. And it, this is not the peace that is established and maintained by brute force and violence. But we're talking about the inbreaking of something deeper and truer, something that can heal and captivate our hearts. So instead of crippling economics, this kingdom begins with gift. It's a gift economics that runs all the way through it. Instead of looking to Caesar for our provision of bread or looking anywhere else for an individualistic identity and status and belonging. Life in this kingdom is punctuated by gathering round a table and affirming our togetherness with all sorts of others. So we begin to see how, how we, the church, this resistance movement, really are called to join in with God's subversive protest movement, you know, resisting and defying the current state of things by fleshing out something different, something beautiful, something true. So Paul writes in chapter 2 of his, le his letter to the, this group in Colossae, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Paul did not have in mind, of course, the, the adverts of our consumer age, but in the battle for our imaginations and to what is important, what, is, uh, what are the bounds of identity, belonging, worth, acceptance, I do not think it is an overextension to say, see to it that no one takes you captive by the promise of Nike trainers or the dream home or the better coffee machine, or that motorbike. Truly these things are not where the fullness of life is to be found. He writes in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness 
of the deity, that is the boundless one, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought into this fullness. Do you know this fullness? Have you ever tasted this fullness of love? This, this enough of God that is peace to our hearts. And so in verse 6, he writes, Just as you, as you did, you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Now continue to live your lives in him. How can we do that? How can we enter into more of that? Well, real quick, just to finish, I've, I've kind of dreamt up a little 12-step program for us as recovering individualistic consumers. Um, it's far from comprehensive. There's much more that needs to be said, connecting to the stuff we were talking about last week, the climate emergency, and connecting forward to the stuff next week of the global economic system. But here's, here's a little bit that's really trying to get at our imaginations and our, our ideas around identity and our individualism. So here we go. Number one, appreciate how materially rich you are. Do you have the wonders of fresh water on tap, a hot shower, a secure and heated shelter, the, the ability to sample world cuisine, your own small collection of books, perhaps? The fact is that these are all extraordinary riches that were probably beyond the reach of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, who probably had just heard of camels, who Jesus tells him, Sell it, sell it and give the money away to the poor. Which brings us on to number two. After we've appreciated just how materially rich we are, what about selling just something that you have and giving the money away? It will be a direct antidote. It will be a step into freedom. I'm not just talking about giving something away so that you can kind of justify an upgraded version for yourselves. I'm talking about doing without something. Number three, learn to fast and to feast. And this is a really quick way into a more extreme and vibrant sort of life. Say goodbye to dull mid-range reality and say hello to special, to anticipated pleasure, to satisfaction, to receiving afresh some of these wonders of life with, with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness is, is what Paul is calling us into in this, this alternative perspective, receiving everything as a gift. And when it comes to celebrating, number four, how about we learn to prioritize shared meals over the consumer frenzy? Put your money and your energy there. There are better ways of communicating love than the obligatory plastic gift. Five, make your home a site of production too not just a site of consumption. Grow something, bake something, learn to dance instead of just watching people dance on a Saturday night. Learn, create laughter, learn to play an instrument instead of just pressing play. You could even take something you produced and go around to your neighbors, which is really gonna help with point six. Learn your neighbor's names. Learn your local shopkeeper's names. This will transform your being in the world and theirs. It's a wonderful thing to do. Do it. Deliberately do it. Number seven, adbust. I have taught, I'm proud to say, I've taught my children to refer to adverts as tricks. The tricks are playing now. 
So you can, I invite you to, to join me in playing the ad game. Decode them. What are they trying to make you feel? What are they promising? Is that true? Of the whole kind of line of adverts, which one is the most ridiculous this time? Alternatively, you could learn to use the mute button. Mute the ads. Use that time to ask a question of your housemate, shock horror. Or even use that time to pray. Number nine, you could publish your budgets. This is something I have done in recent years. Share it with a couple of trusted friends. Probably choose, don't choose two people who are like living a lifestyle above yours. That doesn't always help. You know? <laughs> um, you, the aim is to kind of be honest with yourself and honest with others and invite some comments. Um, set your enough levels. It's part of it. Um, if you've got no one to have this sort of conversation with or no one you feel like you could trust, if it's so unthinkable, so un-English, ask yourself, why is that? And then, and then come, and I'd be so glad to have that conversation with you in confidence. A simple question that we might talk about and look at and analyze our finances with is, are we putting more towards our, our future needs than we are putting towards other people's present needs? And if the answer is yes to that question, as a pastor in your midst, and, and as a friend, I would say, is that really what you want to be doing? And then if you answered yes, I'd point you to Matthew 25, <laughs> read that, and then let's, let's talk again. <laughs> um, that's, it, that's, a, that's a nice little kind of question we could ask ourselves. Are we putting more towards our future needs, like in pensions and savings accounts, than we are using to meet other people's present needs? Is there a better way? Number 10. Richard Foster recommends pausing before a purchase. Like just waiting a week or two. When you've got that urge, oh yeah, I need that, I'm going to buy that. Just pause a week, pray. Ask God maybe to bring that thing to you. And it does happen in that, that week or two window. And if it doesn't happen, just revisit that. Do I, do I still need that? Yes, go ahead and buy it. No congratulations, you've resisted the lure of the impulse purchase, the dark force of the impulse purchase. Number 11, watch the Lorax. Talk about it. It is excellent. And number 12, um, I haven't put anything in for number 12. There was so much, there's so much more I could say, but I wanted to leave it open and allow you to take a moment now to pray, to listen to the nudge of the Spirit, and to fill in uh, another blank uh, there. So let's be still and let's pray. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come into our lives and into our life together. And we pray that we might taste the fullness of you, the, the enough of God. Bring us into your fullness, your fullness of life. Give us wisdom. And pray by your spirit that you might touch our hearts. For any who've never tasted the, the fullness of your love, come Holy Spirit and, and show, show yourself to us. And help us to live 
in resistance to some of the, the norms and the dominant forces of our culture help us to have our imaginations renewed. Lead us into fullness of life, we pray.